Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Language Forgers podcast. My name, my name is... Oh, fuck, I already fucked it off. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Language Forgers podcast. My name is Harry. And I'm Yona, or also known as Kentwo. Yeah, today we'll be looking at um, a bunch of stuff, namely Dune. Yes. Because Dune is finally out. Um, for me, it's been out for like a solid three weeks, maybe. But for you... About, about a week, yeah. Less than a week. I saw on I saw on um I saw on Friday. And for reference, we're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, so Yona, what have you been up to with conlanging recently? So um for reference, it's been quite a while. It's not only been a month uh, since we uh, last recorded. So it's been a while. Um and I've done a lot. So um the main thing is that I finally got uh, a nice domain for my uh, conworld and uh, conlang blog which is kentwo.com so go check that out if you if you like to see more stuff of my conworld and um, the languages and all that um i've been working a lot on a few dialects because um i've been doing local history of my conworld um especially a few new cities that i created and uh, their history so um, I'm doing that, and I'm also working on royal family trees um, and royal drama and, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, stuff like that. And you? Uh, so, yeah, um, likewise, I, I've been working quite a lot of stuff. So I believe in the last episode I was saying um, I was just on the last bit of last bits of Tannel grammar, and um, since uh we recorded the last episode and released it um i've finished all the major parts of tunnel grammar including the prepositions and have since uh, began planning and doing a bit of work on uh, my next language which is also going to be a terrific language and so will be related to tunnel on the main uh, one of the main aspects of this language is that it will be tonal um, now, unfortunately, I did do quite a bit of work, especially on the phonological development and how um, I was, uh, how the tonal system and the phonetic system in general um, was going to work. But unfortunately, I lost that document, and so I've had to start from the beginning again. Um, thankfully, I know, obviously, I know what my proto-language phonology is because I've used it several times to make other terrific languages. Um, but and I knew where I'm going with it because I remember because it's a quite a small vocalic and quite a small consonantal inventory and I know the tones that I want so I've got all that stuff I've got where I start where I need to go I just need to remember all the middle steps as well um which is a uh, which can be quite difficult and uh, I still haven't decided on a couple of aspects of the grammar I know I'm going to be doing a mostly isolating analytical language because I'm not I haven't really done a full-on analytical language before I've done elements uh, languages with a lot of elements of um uh, I've I've made a couple of languages with some analytical elements but that are generally more synthetic tannol is a good example of this but I've never really made one which is more analytical than synthetic so um I'm uh, I'm looking forward to 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 working on this language um in a more uh, proper manner um, especially when I've got uh, lots of idea, more ideas for, for, for the verb system, because currently I, I only have a couple ideas. Uh, one, one of which, um, or a, a, an idea that came for the um, uh, morphosyntactic alignment system that I wanted, came when I was uh, messaging Yona one day and uh, came up with a cool idea for um, a, a tripartite system. 
uh, if you don't know what a tripartite system is, it's sort of like in a negative language you mark your, and this is something we'll be talking about later, you mark the subjective intransitive verbs and the objective transitive verbs the same. In a nominative accusative language like English and German, you mark the subjective and intransitive verb and the subjective and transitive verb the same. In a tripartite system, everything's marked differently. And so this came from uh, an idea I had where I was uh, discussing uh, a language where or Yona brought an idea of a language instead of using a dummy subject for a verb like terrain like in English and German we have to say it rains es regnet because a verb isn't allowed to appear without a subject and Yona brought up the idea of what if a language marked this with the reflexive and I said it couldn't really happen because reflexive verbs in order to put a verb in the reflexive it has to be transitive because a reflexive sub uh, um, uh, affix shows that the object as the verb is the same as the subject and obviously you can't have an object for an intransitive verb so if you make the verb causative then it would be allowed and then the idea stemmed from that so thank you Yona uh, I stole your idea um but it means that um I, I'm gonna have quite it looks like I'm gonna have quite a cool tripartite system where the pronouns um are differentiated in terms of case by tone for the most part which will be a nightmare for me to speak because I'm crap at distinguishing tone but it should look and sound quite cool if it's pronounced correctly. Okay, so um, you've been talking a bit about your language process and the way that um, we've been talking about our ideas and so my um, idea with like the dummy subject. And I just remembered that I wanted to tell that uh, I did work on a new language family. So um, in my con world, there used to be like a language family called the Yamparachlip languages which are kind of like a language spoken by desert people and in contact with like the cha and all that. And I really hated the whole language family because it was terribly made because I didn't know what sound changes and grammar changes and all that were. So um, I decided to redo it. And so that's what I've been doing recently. Um, and I've been messing with a lot of stuff, um, especially grammar stuff. I'm first time making like an ergative language as well. Yes. Uh, it's kind of fitting the ergative theme for today. All right. So um, then I would suggest to go into the linguistics and etymology corner, maybe. Yeah, let's do that. So this episode, um, as uh, Jonah just mentioned, uh, I really want to talk about ergativity uh, because it's a concept that basically all conlangers will inevitably uh, run into um at some point uh usually through uh, wikipedia deep dives of weird languages especially in australia and the caucuses or if you run into a language like basque and a lot of conlangers especially early on or conlangers who aren't that well trained in linguistics or even you know conlangers who are starting from a more linguistic background they find ergativity very difficult to comprehend at first and so many people and this was myself for the longest time, are just scared of, uh, scared to, to include a language with ergativity because it is such a, an alien concept if, you're no, if your native language is, um, especially an Indo-European one like Yona and I, our native languages being English and German. So in this episode, I wish to quickly and as efficiently as I can uh, discuss ergativity and try and explain it in a way that is simple and relates it back to, to languages like English and German so um, you get a good idea of what ergativity really means. So ergativity is a kind of morphosyntactic alignment. That's a very two long words but basically what that means 
is morphosyntactic alignment is how different languages mark or don't mark verbal arguments. Now, a verb argument or verbal argument is something that does or receives the action of a verb. Now, this is where transitivity comes into the picture. Intransitive verbs only take one argument, the subject. Intransitive verbs are like sleep, jump, speak. You can't say I sleep you or I speak you. It doesn't really make any sense. Um, transitive verbs, on the other hand, take two arguments, a subject and an object. And uh, these are verbs like hate, kiss and complete. I can't just say I hate or I complete. It just doesn't sound right. It needs to have an object. Now, the subject of an intransitive verb is sometimes called the S argument. S here standing for subject. And the subject of transitive verbs is sometimes called the A argument. A here standing for agent. And the object of transitive verbs is sometimes called P, which stands for patient. Now, so just to recap that, so subject of intransitive verbs like sleep and jump is called S. The subject of transitive verbs like hate and kiss is A. And the object of, of transitive verbs is P. Now, in a nominative accusative language like English, German, Latin, Japanese, A and S are marked the same. So that's the subject of a transitive verb and the subject of an intransitive verb. So in English, I would say, I sleep and I sleep him. In German, der Hund schläft, der Hund sieht den Fisch. So that means the, 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 the dog is sleeping and the dog sees the fish. And then in Latin, femina dormit and femina draconum widet. So the, fem, uh, the, the woman sleeps and the woman sees a dragon. Now in ergative languages, S and P are marked the same, so that's the subject of an intransitive verb and the object of a transitive verb. In this, in English, this will be rendered as something like, I sleep, me, see, he, or indeed something like, he sleeps, me, see, he, where the subject of sleep, he, and the object of see, him, are both in the so-called absolutive case. It, which in English would be rendered something as like he. Now, ergative languages include Basque, uh, Georgian, but only in the perfective aspects, and gerbil, which is um, uh, an Australian language. So in Basque, um, Martin etorida, Martin has arrived, and then Martinek Diego ikusidu. Uh, so Martin has seen Diego. So in that sentence where Martin is the subject, Martin receives the marking. So ek is the ergative case. So Martinek. Now, in Georgian, something like katsi lakarakops, so the man is speaking, and then katsma vashli chama, the man ate an apple, where ma is the ergative case and e, so katsi versus katsma is the nominative versus ergative form of a man there. And then in German, ngoma bana ganyu, so father returned, and then Yabu ngumangu buran, father saw mother. In these sentences, uh, the S and P arguments are left unmarked, whereas the A argument is marked in the ergative. In Basque, this is ek, in Georgian, this is ma, and in gerbil, this is ngu. Um, this is ergativity in a nutshell. There are, as I mentioned, different types of ergativity. I'm not sure if I mentioned there are different kinds of ergativity, but there are different kinds of ergativity. Um, and the different ones I can talk about in another episode because I don't want to make this more complicated than it actually is.
the only other major thing I can think of related to ergativity is the anti-passive. Uh, but again, I can talk about this at another point unless Yona wants to talk about that now because I did once have to explain the anti-passive to Yona. And it took a while, but I think he got it in the end. So yeah, uh, that's ergativity. It's just another way of marking verbal arguments. That's all it is, in a nutshell. It can get more complex when you bring up different kinds of ergativity and split ergativity, like what Georgian does. Uh, but yeah, that's ergativity in a nutshell. Uh, Yona, do you have any questions? I do not, but um, honestly, I gotta say that I, for me, I, I was scared of ergativity for a long time, as you also mentioned, and I think I kind of understand it now. So. I do understand like what you uh, explained, so that's uh, like a good starting point. I did uh, also include something like this in my um, new conlang family, as I mentioned. So um, I've used a split ergativity there. We can talk about it as well at some point, I guess. We could talk about um, the first time we remember encountering ergativity, because um, I think I remember the first oh, time yeah. I heard of the concept. So I remember, uh, so this would have been when I was about 16, I'd say. Uh, so this is going back a couple of years now. So how old am I now? I'm 19, I'm nearly 20. So uh, this would have been, what, 2018, 2017, something like that. And I remember just uh, hearing of the language Basque. Obviously, I heard of the Basque country and all this sort of stuff, but I wasn't that familiar with the language. And the main reason I'd heard of it is because I, I, I'd heard it has a really weird thing with its phonetics, where it has a difference between um, a laminodental and apical alveolar fricatives, um, which is still something I do not understand how they tell the difference, because I cannot tell the difference, and phonetics is my thing. So what the hell, Basque? And I remember scrolling down the Wikipedia article, and seeing this massive table with all of the uh, the verb conjugations, and this is something I've seen plenty of times when I've been looking at the, um, not verb conjugations, sorry, noun declensions. Um, it's something I've done plenty of times when I was looking at noun declensions for Finnish and uh, Sanskrit and Japanese and all the languages that I've been looking into at that time. And I remember seeing at the top, ergative case, absolutive case, and not knowing what those things are, and then subsequently reading uh, the little text box next to them explaining them and being like, what on God's green earth even is this? And then sort of like clicking on the Wikipedia page for ergativity and just my eyes just glazed over. I'm like, nope, don't understand this. I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to not going to bother with that. And then a little bit later on, I remember watching a Bibliridion video. Uh, this is when I was sort of a bit more familiar with the concept, but like not comfortable, like I wouldn't be able to explain it. And he mentioned it in one of his uh, videos. I was being like, oh, so people do put it in their conlangs. Those people must be like really smart. And then I remember seeing a D uh, DJP video on it too, um, explaining it a bit more fully. And he did a really good job of explaining it. And then uh, from then having having to explain it to other people like Yona meant that I got quite good at just understanding it. And once you understand it, you really realise that ergativity as a concept isn't scary. It's how certain languages employ ergativity is the scary part, especially um, my language, Tanol, uh, is, is a good example of this because it has a fluid S ergative split. So any sort of like active S or fluid S system. And also just aspectual or animacy-based splits and all that sort of stuff. I'm on sort of having um, evidentiality uh, split ergativity. I thought that could be quite fun. 
It's like having verbs, uh, like if you want to imply it for a narrative, then you have it in uh, in nominative accusative, and if you want to imply it's indicative, then you put it in ergative or something like that. It seemed very stupid, but I messed around with that for a while. I, none of my languages have that, but um, it seemed quite fun. Uh, yeah, that's that's the first time I remember um, hearing about ergativity with uh, Basque. Okay, so honestly, I can't really remember because my brain is like a thief. Same. Um, but I, but I do think it's also something with Basque because I can remember going um, or diving into like Etruscan and stuff like that because I was really interested in this, in Etruscan and uh, stuff uh, like languages like that. So I did scroll through Wikipedia as well, and I did find some hypotheses uh, as to where. Etruscan came from, and I kind of landed on weird linguistics uh, relation theories, as well as um, the languages that were spoken in ancient Europe, so in like pre-Indo-European Europe, and so I also kind of landed just on Basque. And my experience was pretty much the same because I also just got scared away and I, I tried to understand it, but I couldn't. Um, and to me, it was super scary. But yeah, like really recently, so maybe like one or two months ago, uh, Harry explained it to me, and now I think I do understand it. But I, I do want to mess around with it, uh, with it more. So maybe I, I do have like a split ergativity between voluntary and involuntary actions, which is uh, pretty basic. But uh, I want to maybe develop it into something else. So. I don't know, you could also do something um, with aspects or, I don't know, let's see. But yeah, that's uh, my history with uh, ergativity. Yeah. Uh, cool. Uh, was that everything you had? Um, yeah. Welcome to my... Um... Welcome to my <laughs> etymology corner, uh, ladies. <laughs> no. So, um, I mentioned um, including some funky stuff in my new language uh, family, which isn't too, too funky, to be honest. It's just uh, substrate, uh, substrate uh, words and substrate languages influencing the um, daughter languages. So I'm talking about a substrate word um, that you probably didn't knew was a substrate word, uh, because it's pretty common and you wouldn't normally tell or you couldn't normally tell. And this word is box, like the canister, like box. Do you have like any idea what it came from or uh, any guesses? Box. Uh, you know what? I've never thought about it. Um, I want to say Latin, but I really don't know. Okay, so Latin isn't too bad because it came, or it arrived in Germanic through Latin. All right, okay. So it's first of all, it's it's cognate to German Buchse. Buchse is um, can or box as well. And it stems from Proto-West Germanic Buchsa. And uh, there's there's two options where it could have come from in Latin. One being Buxis or Buxus. And both come from an ancient Greek noun, or individually come from an ancient Greek noun. One being Buxus from Pyxos. The other being uh, Buxis from ancient Greek Pyxis. And the main noun root here is the ancient Greek word um, pyxos, 
meaning boxwood or box tree, which is a plant or tree growing in southern Europe, especially Italy. And it's cognate to German Buchsbaum. Yeah. And funnily, um, the other one, Pyxis, is derived from Pyxos with a feminine suffix, meaning a box made of boxwood, a box, a table made of boxwood, or a cylinder. So basically just something made from boxwood, which is incredible in my opinion. And the Greek root is from a substitute language, but normally it's thought to come from Italy, like the substitute language, um, because the trees are native to Italy, but not Greece. Um, so yeah. Cool. I think it's pretty cool that there's like a bunch of words that we just use on a daily basis and don't know that they're like um, from a substrate language being spoken here before like Indo-European people um, came here, which is pretty crazy. So yeah, I really got into substrate languages and substrate words. Yeah, no, I think um, it's really cool, especially with Greek. Because um, uh, Greek is, or ancient Greek specifically, is some of the oldest written um, uh, language that we have in Europe. And despite its age, there are still languages spoken in that part of the world which were much, much older than Greece and were, uh, Greek. And, and we just don't know anything about them other than the fact that they clearly had a massive influence on Greek. I, I can't remember any off the top of my head, but I do believe a couple of the gods, uh, the Greek gods... And their names also come from substrate languages. Yeah, most of them actually. Um, I know. Yeah, Zeus definitely isn't one because that comes from the old um, uh, Proto-Indo-European uh, Proto word for sky father, um, and it's it's uh, it's cognate with uh, uh, Teos and Deos and Deus and these kinds of words. Zeus is a, like a better, well, not better, but a bit more accurate pronunciation. Um, but a lot of the other gods. Um, don't come from a like a an Indo-European source. They come from something that we just don't we just don't and could never know unless we invent time travel. Unfortunately, um, so uh, yeah, it's just really cool. Yeah, actually, um, there's like a running gag on Wiktionary uh, um, Discord, as I've heard, because I'm unsure, but um, because. I'm not that deep into Wiktionary Discord, and up until this moment, I didn't knew it existed. Me neither. There's some running gag that um, there's always Beaks uh, or Beaks uh, suggests a, a, a substrate word um, for like a lot of ancient Greek etymologies. Yep. I think um, D Demeter one or Demeter is, would be a, a better ancient Greek pronunciation. I think I think that's one because uh, I think it comes from like no, no no I don't think so. Oh right oh no you're right no it comes I think from... it's it's a it's Meter yeah Earth Mother you're right yeah Demeter yeah so same root as like yeah. mother uh, yeah you're completely right I just realised that oh, I'm trying to think of one then um. One one example is Apollon. Oh, yeah, Apollo, of course, yeah, Apollo's one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, a lot of interest in it. I, I guess... Uh, Basically, most. Yeah, most of them. Uh, Greek is very much like uh, a lot of the Germanic languages in this regard, and that clearly there was a huge amount of substrate languages, or at least one massively influential sub uh, substrate language 
that was present in the area before the arrival of the Hellenic or the Germanic peoples, and they, it had a big influence on clearly culture and language, but it was completely destroyed by the influx of these new languages, and so we just can't know anything about them. But I um, I think, honestly, most of the theonyms of uh, ancient Greek um, are... Theonyms, that's a fantastic word. I've never heard of that word before. That's amazing. I should use that more often. <laughs> yeah, but there's like a bunch of gods and deities, especially especially like uh, um, nature deities, which are um, connected to like rivers or uh, mountains because uh, hydronyms and just in general um, place names are often substrate words, especially also river names. In, in, in Middle Europe, yeah. there's like a bunch of a bunch of words uh, that like most rivers um, are Germanic or Celtic, but also substrate words. Sometimes. Yeah, there are a lot of rivers that come from uh, Celtic roots. Um, obviously, the, the Celts used to be all over Western and Central Europe before uh, the Romans came in, like tribes in the case of uh, Germany and, 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 and uh, England. But there are a huge amount of rivers in England called Avon, which just comes from the old Brythonic word for river. The Romans just asked the Celts, what do you call this river? And they said river. Um, it's quite funny. Yeah. One other example would be Athena. Yeah, I thought Athena might not be from an Indo-European route. What's the theory for that? Is it is there nothing at all? Or there's literally no theory. Um, I just know for a fact that um, Athens and Athena because um, are related, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. I don't know if you know about uh, the myth, but basically the myth is that Poseidon and Athena um, both wanted to be the patron of Athens, and they just showed the inhabitants what gift they could bring them, and Poseidon uh, just brought up like a salt wa salt water fountain, and Athena just um, let grow a olive tree, I guess, and so they accepted Athena and. Athens was like the, uh, the center of Athena, and when the Greek-speaking or pre-Greek-speaking, so with pre-Greek I mean the Indo-European-speaking Proto-Hellenic uh, people arrived there, and they they took this um, deity of Athena, um, which was like I think there was like a cult on on the mountain uh, that is located in Athens. So uh, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, Athena's got quite a couple of fun stories about her in Greek mythology, but unfortunately, this is not a podcast about Greek mythology. Um, I'm sure plenty of those um, exist already. Yeah, but I, I just... No, 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 I was going to say, like, I, I was just about to start talking about the, the, the story of Arachne and uh, Athena, but then I remembered this is a linguistics and world-building podcast, not a Greek mythology podcast, unfortunately. So for our main topic today, we wanted to discuss uh, the new Dune film uh, directed by Denis uh, Villeneuve, a, a man whose name I can never pronounce first time round. And this is a film I've been excited for for a very long time, uh, not only because I love Denis Villeneuve and his work, especially Arrival, which is a fantastic uh, film for, for linguists um, and, and conlangers alike, as well as just sci-fi fans, um, but also because I am... A Wait a moment. Sorry to, to interrupt you, but wait, is Arrival the movie with, like, the aliens who communicate with, like, the circles? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, because it's one of the things that um, just showed me that there was, like, conning in media, and this was 
like such a great moment yeah, when yeah. I watched the movie. Sorry. It's, 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 it's all right, it's all right. Yeah, so Denis Villeneuve, who uh, directed Arrival, which, as Jonas said, was um, uh, it was sort of like a very big representation of conlanging in media, and certainly one which uh, shows uh, an alien language in not necessarily a realistic way, but certainly an immersive way. Um, I do like Arrival, but as a linguist and a conlanger, I do have a couple of issues with it, but that's a, that's a discussion for another time. But yeah, Denis Villeneuve is a fantastic director, and Dune is one of my favourite books of all time. Like I first read it when I was about 15, I think, and then uh, I, I've read it several times since then. It's a fantastically... It's a, fantastic, uh, it's a fantastically phenomenal book, is what I'll say. It's just very well written, and the sequels are very good as well. Uh, Herbert is clearly was clearly just a fantastically intelligent man and a very, very good writer. And so... There have been other attempts to uh, adapt Dune in the past. So uh, famously, there was a failed uh, uh, um, adaptation of it by um, cult filmmaker Alejandro um, uh, Horodovsky. Again, another name that I can't really pronounce. But it was uh, cancelled due to just it became too expensive and the cut of the film was going to be like 10 hours long or something. And then in 1984, there was a, an adaptation by David Lynch, which was uh, bad. Uh, it was not a very good film at all. And now we've just had uh, Denis Villeneuve's um, uh, film released, at least where I am, um, last week. And it is part one. They've split the, the book into two parts, which is, I think, a right decision with Dune, because one of the main problems with... Uh, David Lynch's version, other than the fact that he clearly really, really hadn't read the book properly, is that he was trying to fit in a lot of material into one two-hour film, uh, whereas the first part of uh, this uh, of Denis Villeneuve's uh, Dune film uh, was two and a half hours long and covers basically the first half of the book. So all this was exciting enough. Um, there was a new Dune film coming out, Denis Villeneuve's directing... And then I saw that there were going to be conlangs in the film, which is obviously very exciting, especially when uh, they hire somebody who knows what they're doing to make the conlang, or conlangs in this case. And the name I saw attached to it was none other than Mr. DJP, David J. Peterson, which is always very reassuring because David DJP really knows what he's doing when it comes to conlangs, uh, especially for big media um, projects like Dune and obviously, of course, Game of Thrones is really how we um, got famous within uh, uh, within Hollywood for, for doing conlanging. So, uh, yeah, uh, Yona, uh, do you want to talk about your history with Dune? Because I believe you've, uh, you, you're also quite familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, I've been hearing about um, Dune for quite a while now. I think I've stumbled upon the trailer at some point, and I did like... Um, Timothy challenged me a lot because um, who doesn't? Um, so I did end up watching the trailer because I I had heard about Dune, so I, I just wanted to check it out and sound, uh, looked kind of sci-fi and fantasy-like, so I checked it out and really did like the trailer. So I ended up um, getting the books pretty recently, so last Christmas. So I did get like the first three books yeah, and like some people taught me about their experience about Dune, and so I decided to just um, buy the first three for once. And well, I did also like the first one, but I prefer the second one, and I did not like the third one. Mm. I'm honest with you, um, and I'm unsure if I will read the other ones. Um, but in general, 
I enjoyed the story like a lot mm. because I it's just always awesome to just see that like 50 years ago they also already had like a vivid uh, scene of people who were into sci-fi or fantasy and that's always pretty interesting to see what ideas they had and what um, they thought the future would look like so that's kind of cool um so i did read the first three books and um was pretty excited about the movie and yeah so <laughs> then i watched the movie yeah and i think we can both say the the film just as a cinematic experience detached from the source material was awful no i'm kidding it was absolutely fantastic it was seriously <laughs> one of the best films that i've ever seen um and like obviously, even I, I'm a massive Dune fan, and I knew what all of the the big plot beats were going to be. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to do too many spoilers, but you know, the Atreides are going to move to Arrakis, and you know, the the, the Baron has a plan for them, and certain characters have certain things happen to them. Like I knew it was go, you know, roughly when each of those things was going to happen, and what exactly was going to happen, and despite that fact. Every single time something big happened, it still shocked me, and I was I was still in the moment. I wasn't just like, you know, having a notepad there with a checklist of all the things in the book that I wanted to see happen. It would, it felt like an extension of the book rather than a recreation of the book or somebody ignoring the book or somebody trying to do an exact copy of the book. And none of those things would be very interesting to watch. Uh, it, it's a project and a film you can tell a lot of care and love went into. Absolutely. So. I was also very impressed, I gotta say that, so the movie was very entertaining and very impressive to me. And I I did watch the the, the movie, the earlier movie that you mentioned that was not too great, I, I did watch the trailer for it, and it's such a huge difference. I mean, there's like 30 to 40 years uh, a drif- difference in, in, in like techniques they have created, but it's such a huge difference. And fun fact, my mother um, did watch the first one, but just to see Sting there because she's a big <laughs> fan. Yeah. Because uh, Sting, Sting plays Raban, I think. No, he plays Fade Rauther. Sorry, he plays Fade Rauther. So um, it was very impressive to me. Uh, I did enjoy the experience. Um, I do have, I think in some cases, I have like a different opinion than you. I'm not too energetically um praising the movie but i did like it so the movie was very very well adapted and as you mentioned it's not a um it's not like retelling the story but just um how did you say yeah as i said it was it's more like it was an extension of the book so it wasn't quite retelling the story it was telling the story in a way that made sense for the screen so there are certain adaptations which try and too closely copy the book and then that doesn't really work very well because books and films are very different in terms of writing and so you get some as well which are too different and you lose too much and this is the sweet spot so lord of the rings is also this as well where it's roughly the same story with a couple of changes that make sense for the screen uh, for the most part so yeah i said it's more like an extension of the book rather than a rewrite or um, a, a direct copy of it I think in general this uh, walking on the path of not being too far away, not being too close to the story was in general like a theme that was going on through the movie. Um, also later when we talk about the languages, it's something that 
I also saw there. But yeah, so it did portray the book very, very well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically, yeah, I don't want to get into spoilers. I just want to, I just want to encourage everybody to go out and watch the film, even if you never read Dune. Also, if you haven't read Dune, you should read Dune. It's, it's a fantastic book. And sequel's good. Third book, as I said, not my favourite. I think it's still good, but the fourth book is one of my absolute favourites. Um, God Emperor of Dune is just... Oh, if they carry on with this series, and I really hope they carry on making books on the series, I would love to see an, ad- an adaptation of God Emperor of Dune, just to see um, Leto II in full worm form brought to the screen would just be the best thing. Oh, now I'm thinking about an adaptation of, Ch- of God Emperor of Dune, that's a different matter. So yeah, yeah I'm really excited uh, for the next part, because as I said, this is only the first half of the book, so there's the second part. That looks good. We're going to get a lot more of Charney, played by uh, uh, played by um, Zendaya in that, so that will be good. And uh, Paul, and what's going to be happening with Paul and his journey to become Muad'Dib, and uh, the stuff that he's going to do with the Emperor. We'll also finally see the Emperor as well, because we haven't actually um, we haven't actually had the Emperor yet. We've had mentioned heard a mention of the Emperor, but we haven't actually seen the Emperor at all in the uh, in the uh, in the in the film. And also the other characters like uh, Princess Irulan uh, should be quite fun to see too. So yeah. Now, uh, as this is a Conlanging world building podcast and Conlanging specifically, um, the main thing we wanted to talk about here were the Conlangs in this Dune film. And I actually took a little notepad to me to the cinema to take notes while I was watching the film. And there was a lot more going on than I was expecting. And in also some ways less than I was expecting as well. Um, so yeah. Uh, so something that's really, really good design choice was the fact that the whenever we see written words or letters or anything like this scrolls whatever in this film they're not written with the latin script and that was so relieving it was when i saw that i wrote down conscript not latin smiley face because when like june is set in like the um uh, in like the year 10,000 or 11,000 whatever it's set like thousands upon thousands of years in the future so it makes sense that people would no longer be using the last on the script and they'd be using something differently so just seeing that put a smile on my face yeah totally so um i also did take a note quite similar to yours um because something that i noticed and that i absolutely loved was like the arrival scene when um uh, Paul's father um, had to or, or had to um, sign the contract um, of of going uh, to Dune, and it was just ah, just seeing these awesome letters on like paper texture. It just it, it was very pleasing, like a lot, and it made me want to create like a or like finish a language, make or also finish like a um, font and then put it on something, just anything, just as having something um, written in the conning in your hands, like just a book with a title or like in this case, like the scroll with the contract, it just, ah, it looks so good. It did, it looked really good. And there's another scene as well uh, where um, it's in one of Paul's visions and we see Jessica um, in a, in sort of like a, a cavern kind of thing with writing on the wall, cradling a child. And if you've read the book, this will likely be um, Alia, uh, Paul's younger sister. 
Uh, and um, and she has uh, there's text on the wall behind her and also over her face and sort of all lines up. And um, in uh, I believe it was on Twitter, uh, DJP said that um, that what's written there is the Chakobska uh, or Chakobsa. Like I think that's the language that the Fremen speak. That's what's called. Um, uh, that that's a translation of the litany against fear, which is one of the, the most famous lines in the book. You know, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death. Blah blah blah. In Tchaikovsky, uh, so that's quite a, a nice little Easter egg. I love it when the design team and the prop team and the set dressers work with who's ever in charge of the languages. It's something that didn't really happen in Game of Thrones that much. So uh, High Valyrian was supposed to have a script. Uh, but unfortunately, um, they didn't. Uh, apparently, they just not have enough time to put it on screen. So, High Valyrian's written with Latin, which doesn't really make any sense. But oh well, there are a lot of things in Game of Thrones that don't make any sense. Um, so yeah, it was lovely to see that for for one. And uh, my comment on it was, it looks very much like Glagolitic. I'm not sure if you got this as well, Yona. Um. So I, I've also been wanting to talk about uh, this exact um thing. First of all, I think it's. It, the look is very monumental. Um, I gotta say, I also must have missed the scene where they, the scene that you des described when it's actually shown, because I did not see it. Yeah, you must have been in the toilet. <laughs> it was a very long film, in fairness. Also, I've been looking for like uh, more in-detail posts uh, from DJP on Twitter. So I was um, pretty happy um, when I saw you retweet his tweet. Um, mm -hmm. So, pretty cool, and I gotta say I do like the formal aesthetics in a way, mm -hmm. because um, I feel like the language. Uh, also, we can talk about the Fremen language, yeah, um, a bit uh, more. Um, so, in general, I think the Fremen language is just a, the great work because um, it's it sounds very 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 nice. Mm -hmm. um, it's very pleasing to the ear, and Another thing that I noticed is that um, it fits with like the Arabic um, desert people perspective, or like it fits with with uh, the perspective without being too close to like actual Arabic because um, that's something that I um, waited for to just see how they have adapted that because mm, yeah. <laughs> in the books it was horrible. <laughs> Just um, yeah, yeah. Al and Muadib and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So I think um, in this case, it's once again like the not being not moving too far away from like um, from this uh, this kind of uh, topic of Arabic or uh, Arabic-ish um, languages, um, but it's also something totally new. So it's 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 awesome, and. The script you mentioned, uh, Glagolitic, um, funnily, I did not uh, think about it, but uh, now that you say it, it kind of makes sense. I also have like the document just opened uh, before me, and I'm looking at it, and I do like the script. It looks, as I mentioned, very monumental. Something that is uh, interesting to me is that it's not necessarily recreating anything that is existent. Uh, which I see sometimes with uh, conscripts. So just taking something like like a runic script or, I don't know, like a hieroglyphic script, something like that. And I feel like this script does not do this. So it's something very new and something that 
has like an interesting way of portraying characters. So I can see like a bunch of characters that um, are pretty similar with, but like with a dot added, and I'm just wondering like a lot um, about the the function of, of, of the script. Or... Yeah, I was doing that as well because uh, th this script, uh, the Tchaikovsky script, I keep on saying Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky script is an Abu Gida specifically. And I noticed something is, I believe the, the symbol representing Ja, or it might be Cha, it's some kind of post-alveolar um, affricate, is the same as the symbol for Ha, but with a, I believe one of them has a dot in it. So clearly there's been a sound change at some point, or this is what I assume whereby there was some kind of debuccalization and there might have been um, another palsal sound, maybe sha or something like that, for example, which became ha later on, but the symbols or, or the letters uh, stayed quite similar to each other, uh, which is quite interesting. It just shows that TJP, as always, put in a lot of work, uh, put a lot of work into this language. Now, I did actually go through the, the documents that DJP's posted and try to do a bit of um, analysis um, on this language um, to sort of see what it's like overall. And um, it's uh, it's roughly what I was expecting. I mean, because uh, the whole thing about the Fremen, who are the native people of Arrakis, uh, they are very uh, explicitly um, inspired by um, Arabs and, and, the Arab, and the Arabic people. Um, and this language is no exception. So something interesting that DJP does, for the most part, this language um, only has three vowels. Uh, with a couple of exceptions, but like it's uh, it, um, well, it's it's not three vowels. That's not true. But um, it, it's sort of the way it uses its vowels is sort of very reminiscent of modern di Arabic dialects, um, as opposed to classical Arabic, which did only have three vowels. And um, I have actually pulled up the listening against fear, and um, obviously my pronunciation here won't be perfect, but it'll give um, those who haven't seen the film yet an idea of, of what the of what the language sounds like. So to give the English translation first, um, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings obliteration. I will face my fear. I will p permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will p I will turn the inner eye to see its path. When the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And now in the Fremen language, Oni Sojaha. Jahi Vizvik Ruzam, Jahi Zulich, and Zad Habit Vashtha, Kirashi Wajayahi, Sahathiho Ahasani, Vanat Isathani, Sish Isaha, that's hard to say, Vanat Heshayaha, Uthigi Gifha. Isaha jahi chem unaraha sobinat at marinet hisait. And yeah, I can see how that is inspired by Arabic, but it does not sound entirely like Arabic. I'm not sure what you say about this, Yona. It's just something very totally new and something that still fits um, the way. Um, the Fremen are portrayed, and mm. um, without being, without it just being the, in this exact uh, storyline of yeah, oh, so it's just a copy of Arabic. That'd be very disappointing to see. So, or worse still, if it, it worse still, if it if it was just Arabic, that would have been the worst scenario. But no, DJP didn't let us down, and so um, DJP is yet to release a. I'm not sure if he will, but he's yet to release a uh, full 
grammar document um, on this language. He might do it after part two has re been released. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, maybe he's still doing a bit of work on it. Um, but I pulled up um, all of the lines of dialogue in this language and did a bit of morphological analysis to see um, what I can tell about this language. Um, so um, the first thing is that it has, for the most part, post-modifiers, specifically like determiners and articles go after nouns, which are quite interesting. So to compare to Arabic, Arabic, uh, they come before. Uh, possessions marked on the noun. Uh, which is uh, a very cool. I love possession being marked on the noun. And these possession markers are clearly derived from um, the pronouns, of course, and um, are very similar to the verb, verbal morphologies, so I can tell for the most part. Um, appositions as prefixes um, on the front of the noun, that's also quite um, interesting. Um, it doesn't have case, as far as I can tell, um, although I, I didn't really, there's not a huge amount of nouns to compare against here, so with more data I would be able to say more explicitly. Zero copula, which is very interesting. Arabic is also zero copula, so that's something. Um, and it does have polypersonal agreement, um, which obviously Arabic um, doesn't have, uh, as far as I'm aware. But that is, that is quite an interesting choice. I think polypersonal agreement, it just feels right. Um, for this language. Um, now, so some of the, the words or phrases I was using to do my analysis here was um, uh, heishi gishi, uh, which means I recognize you, uh, which is something that Stilgar says to uh, Paul, I believe, when they first meet. And then there's also minazashaho, which is you think it. And then yazalahao, which means he favors him. And then we have ledi, which is I know. Uh, minazash, do you believe? Tasaho, um, strike him. And uzoluho, kill him. So from those few examples, you can tell a couple of things uh, are, are going are going on here. Um, so the first person singular form, I think it's it, it's fairly clear is e. Uh, so he, she, gi, she. One of those e's there has to be the first person form, and then we have ledi also ending in this long e. Now the second person form I think is sha somehow related to sha, maybe with e after it as well, depending on certain circumstances. So we have minazashaho and minazash um, uh, as uh, second person forms, and then the third person form was really quite hard to tell. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that either there's something complex going on here with gender or something like that, or generally third person is unmarked for subject, and then the object form is or or ho, depending on context, because we have tasaho, uzuluho, and minazashaho, as um, strike him, kill him, you think, are all third person objects. And then he favours him, he favours him is Yazalahao, ending in an O, but no ha before it. So I think maybe something there's something going on there with um, subject versus object position, which would mean that this is uh, something that's been inspired by Swahili, uh, which would be quite interesting, or possibly not necessarily inspired by Swahili, but would do something quite similar to Swahili. Um, uh, so as I said, that's all the morphological analysis I was able to do uh, based on all of the data that I had, or all the data that I could find at the very least. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about this uh, this Fremen language, uh, grammatically or phonologically or whatever? Mm, no. <laughs> Honestly, I, um, I, I did not. Um, 
analyze it as much as you did. So I, I did peek at it. I did try to see some things, but so other than seeing that, for example, Jaha and Jahi, there must be some kind of either Jah or Jah. Yeah. That must mean uh, fear, I think. Yeah, yeah. But anything other than that, I did not. Uh, yeah, I didn't even. I didn't tell. even notice that. Hold on, let's do a quick bit of analysis now. So, yeah. So I must not fear. Uh, fear is the mind killer. I will face my fear. Okay, so um, there's uh, yeah. So jahi jahi, and then I will face my fear. So there's yeah. jahai. So maybe I believe so. E will be marking the the first person here. The my fear. So maybe the vocalic change, the i the i part is maybe an accusative case, which would be quite interesting because that would mean that it has both case marking and polypersonal agreement, which is quite rare and very interesting. And also just looking at that sentence, so um, I will face my fear. So that sentence is qirashi wa jahai. Now, as I said, I think e is um is the uh, the the first person form there. So it looks like in this case either the third person argument here is omitted. So it's not, for example, kiarashi uh, or or something like that. It's just kiarashi. But it also features sh, which, as I said, I analyze as something to do with the second person. So maybe this might be some kind of vocative. Uh, construction. So I will face you, my fear. So maybe it's some kind of um vocative construct. As I said, that maybe is the 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 wajahai is some kind of vocative. I have literally no way of telling. Um, it's just based on my own analysis here. Um, possibly if we tweet DJP, he might be able to tell us the answer. Oh, we'll just have to wait and see if some kind of formal grammar document is uh, released. I could ask him on uh, on his email address. I, I've been I've been I've been asking him some questions earlier for like in, for my article. So maybe he yes that that would be quite quite good to know. We can follow up next time. Uh, but yeah, it's quite difficult to do uh, full morphological analysis when we when we don't have that much data uh, available and some of uh, so this listening against fear. So a lot of the stuff that's in the script's been translated. Uh, it's been translated um, uh, uh, directly. It's a, there's a literal translation, whereas this listening against fear is just the English original, then the 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 conlang, and then just two forms of the script, which is uh, disappointing. Uh, but um, it also makes the the uh, the challenge a bit more interesting when it comes to trying to analyze it and also trying to um, bring up uh, you know, elements uh, that I've already analysed and try and make it fit with my model of how I think this language works. Um, it's quite fun. Now, there were two other languages I wanted to talk about here other than just the, uh, the, the Fremen language. And one of them really took me by surprise. I was not expecting it at all. And that was the... Uh, the there was a sign language in this film. And I can't think... Uh, and there'll, there'll probably be one, but I can't think of another sign language conlang in media at least not one that's been presented visually in a, in a visual medium i mean like tv and uh, film it really really interesting it, it, it was oh i did i did not i don't know i did not think about it because i knew that there were like signs or like a secret sign language between paul and his mother in the in the book in the book but I just I I had no idea. I, I mean I noticed it, but I 
it's a bit more thought uh, on it, so... Yeah, and um, I did check, and it is actually a con line he did. Now, there's not a lot of information available at all on this, uh, other than just the um, the, the signs uh, themselves. Uh, the, the, uh, there are videos of uh, DJP doing those, the, the signs in the film themselves. And it's much harder to do morphological analysis on sign language than it is uh, spoken or written language. It's it's not impossible, uh, but it's it's not something I'm that well trained in. It's only not it's not something that's covered in in the morphology module of my uh, of my degree, uh, which is a shame really. But um, yeah, it's uh, it was interesting to see certainly, and um, I only the only bit the only sign language I know anything of is is British sign language. So um. But as I said, it was just lovely to see sign languages are something that I've wanted to make, a uh, conlang sign language, that is. Um, I've, I've been wanting to make for a while now, and uh, it's lovely to see it in the media. And it was employed very well in the film, because I, I think that there's, there was a sign language in the book, but um, I really can't remember that well. So yeah, that was the one that really caught me by surprise. I was very, very happy to see it. I think it was uh, very well done, very tastefully done. Um, and uh, yeah, clearly DJP had a lot of fun making it. And then the last language I wanted to talk about was the language that the uh, the Saudakar speak. Now the Saudakar are the um, the 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 Imperial Army, uh, which are trained on the prison planet of Cilicus Cundus. I believe in the film it's said to be the what was it the uh, the yeah the military training planet, which is not entirely correct. It is technically a prison planet. Uh, but like the language was very interesting. So the um, the only thing I was able to find uh, for it was the text that one of the priests or something says, but it wasn't translated. It just had it. It was just written out. And then uh, the other one, uh, what the other document I found on it was the document on the sounds in it. It wasn't an IPHR, which is a description of the sounds, and it has adjectives. Quite a bit. I had adjectives and front round of vowels, and they're the two big headlines here. So it had u and er, and then also um, and, uh, uh, um, and was performed very well. It sounded very, very nice. And it was nice to see the Saudakar have their own language. Um, I'm not sure how, make, how much sense it makes within the universe. Maybe it's just the native language of Cilicia Secundus, and then the prisoners have to learn it. Uh, which would be quite interesting from a sociolinguistic point of view, uh, a language where most of its speakers are are, are not are not native speakers. It could be quite interesting, uh, but we didn't we didn't see a lot of that. We just saw mostly on on the scene that was set on on Solicitor Secundus. Uh, do you have any uh, comments on this Saudakar language? I do. Oh, lovely. So my note says um, was sorted, but somewhat quote unquote sounding harsh, mm. meaning. Uh, quote unquote bad guys. So, what I wanted to say, or my first thought was that uh, I thought it sounded really harsh and like intentional, really harsh, which uh, that's, uh, I mean, it is kind of harsh. And I mean, I did not notice the adjectives because uh, it was just a very short uh, episode or just a very short scene, um, scene where they were speaking it. Um, so I would have wished for a longer scene, but probably we are getting more of this in like the second uh, film. Um, but from what I could tell, uh, what is that? Um, uh, I mean, it sounded really good. I, it did, but um, for me, it, it might have 
been my association because I'm German. Many people think that about mm. German, also about Russian and stuff like that. But many people think it's um, the bad guys equals the harsh mm. language. So that's something that I had to think about, which does not mean it's it's all about the language. Because uh, as I mentioned, I hope there's more to come and there's more to explore. And it did sound awesome. Um, and uh, it's interesting to see um, adjectives being used. Yeah, I can't think of many other. Uh, yeah, I can only other. I can only think of one other conlang in media which use adjectives, which is uh, Navi uh, from uh, Avatar, uh, which is obviously quite famous. Um, the the the, mm, the, yeah. the the film, the language, uh, slightly less so. It's a very very interesting language. If you have not read uh, about uh, Navi before, you should totally do it. I think that has a tripartite verb system actually. Um, off the top of my head, can't quite remember. But yeah, no. Um, and while it is kind of disappointing to just see the generic bad guy language sounds harsh thing, um, the Fremen who are depending on how you want to read things, the good guys, and their language wasn't exactly like it is also quite harsh. It's got a uvula stop in there, club, which is um, you know, people have a lot of associations with that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of disappointing to just see you know bad guy language. It sounds harsh to English speakers, whatever harsh is supposed to mean in terms of actual um, uh, ob objectivity in terms of phonesthetics, but it's a nice bit of auditory um, uh, uh, storytelling, you know, these are the bad guys, they're on a planet which is dark and it always rains and there's these scary priests shouting in scary languages with sounds like ah in them, so um, it, it wasn't entirely unsurprising either. Oh, well, it was surprising that the, that the Saudakar had their own language, that was, that was certainly very cool. Yeah, I think it, in general it was just interesting to see just another bit of, of languages in, in that uh, universe, and mm, that's totally, pretty cool. Totally agree. And I did enjoy watching these scenes, and I would have liked to rewatch them even more often. Um, but yeah, maybe one day on DVD or something like that. Yeah, no, that sounds good. And again, if um, DJP ever releases a, a full grammar documents um or not even a full grammar document even something just about the verbs i think would be quite interesting then uh, that would be that'd be very nice of him so dgp if you're listening and i know you're not uh, please uh, send us or send yona at the very least um a, a copy your copy of uh, the jacobska grammar because uh, it, it looks like a very interesting language certainly i mean i, I can and i will um mail um djp and um, we can talk about uh the specifics later on, maybe. Yep. So there's uh, one uh, specific scene that I've been wanting to talk about a bit, uh, which is the Gomjaba scene. Oh yes, that was a fantastic scene. Where Paul is um, asked to do the test. Um, and it was awesome because that was pretty much one of the first uh, um, well, it was one of the first scenes where you could listen to the language or one of the languages. And in my opinion, it sounded so great because there was like a bunch of whispering in different... Uh, I, I'm not sure if it was different voices, but at least one voice in like a calling, which I believe could have been um, the Atreides um, language, but I'm unsure. But uh, to fully understand how the language sounds uh, it was too whispery but I've, I understand why it was whispery so just from a point of view of watching the film without being a Korninger it was awesome because it 
just made so much sense. But from the point of view of being a conning, it was uh, like a tiny bit sad that uh, you couldn't uh, fully understand like uh, the phonetics and stuff like that. And I think this is once again a case of DJP really utilizing less is more uh, with his conlangs here. It's not totally in your face um, in the same way that another filmmaker might employ. Um, uh, and obviously, as conlangers ourselves, and uh, Jonah specifically, who makes conlangs for people, it's very nice to see conlangs in full force, on full display in media. But at the same time, it can get a bit distracting sometimes um, if you overutilize them or if you if you draw far too much more attention than is needed um, to them. And uh, Denis Villeneuve and DJP and all the writers did a very good job of um, clearly showing this is a language. And one of my favorite bits of the film actually was um, in the old ecology laboratory, and we just see a bunch of Fremen idly sitting around and speaking this language. Oh. It was just a really nice bit of world building for me, you know. They're all, yeah, they're all just speaking this language. They're talking about, you know, thanks for the coffee stuff like this. That's some of my favorite stuff you can do with the con language. It really helps it make it feel real. It's just uh, little interactions like that between speakers. It's so, yeah, that's just a brilliant case of just using less is more, of just having a couple of extras in a in a little establishing shot speak speak your language. Absolutely, and I I think so. A bunch of my friends did see the movie. Um, a bunch of friends who uh, who have nothing to do with languages and nothing to do with conlanging, and they told me that they thought there was like a lot of uh, dialogues in in quote unquote foreign weird languages, um, which was interesting to me because for me it was mm -hmm. like just a few instances that you wouldn't want to miss, hmm. and they. Um, felt like it was like a lot so it's interesting um and it's i think it, it's a good way to to have like a balance yes i totally agree and obviously the reason why we feel it we're sort of it's less than we want is because we want as much data as possible to analyze and uh, see what djp's done to make this language until he actually tells us if that if that point comes or if he releases um um art of language invention to electric boogaloo uh, but it is interesting that your uh, friends said that they thought there was quite a lot in this language, which does mean that people are catching on that it's a weird foreign language, and who knows, they might look it up and find that language creation is a thing and might get into conlanging. Uh, it's a, always a good way. Big media things often get people into conlanging. Game of Thrones did that recently, obviously. Lord of the Rings is a classic example of that. But yeah, no. Generally, I think everybody involved um, in the linguistics aspect of the film, obviously GJP, I imagine the, the writers and uh, Denis Villeneuve himself did a good job. The actors did a very, very good job of making the language feel and sound real. Um, and um, I can't remember the guy who played Still Gone Out. Um, Javier uh, Baudem, uh, is that what he's called? I can't remember, he's a Spanish actor, but he, he, he pronounced this language beautifully. And he only had a couple of lines of dialogue, but whatever he did, it just sounded... And the way he delivered the lines was so amazing. And the, the little accent that he put on his English when he was speaking English really added to it. It very much reminded me of the guy who played um, Grey Worm in um, Game of Thrones. I think it's called Jacob Anderson, something like that. He, who spoke High Valyrian so well 
and when he wasn't speaking high Valyrian, he was speaking common. He spoke it with such a good and realistic accent um, that somebody in this world would have. It really helped with the world building and the immersion. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, um, Dune, absolutely fantastic film. Um, I certainly highly recommend you to go and watch it. I'm sure Yona agrees. Also, please read the book, read it before, read it afterwards, read it during if you can do that, uh, whatever. Just read the book, read the other books if you want. It's uh, a f- just fantastic film. As, as From a Colin Langing world-building point of view, I mean, the world-building's already fantastic because Frank Herbert did just such a fantastic job of making the Dune universe feel big and alive. I mean, even just the structure of the government, I and mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent on, on like how the lands are at interacts with the Chome Company and how the Chome Company interacts with the, the, the Space and Guild, all that sort of stuff. But like the world building's fantastic enough and the way Denis Villeneuve um, presented it on screen is fantastic. And obviously DJP, as always, did a fantastic job with the Conlangs. Plenty to talk about, even from the little snippets that we got. Fantastic of DJP to release all the dialogue and a couple of other snippets here and there and other documents. I uh, hope he releases some more stuff soon. Uh, as Jonas said, he's going to uh, Jonas going to try and get in contact with him, and maybe we might be able to get a, gl- a, a couple things um, out of him. I'd love to know more about this verb system because it looks very interesting. Uh, so yeah, as I said, Dune, fantastic film. I really enjoyed it. I love Dune. I think the conlangs were great. Yeah. Okay, so um, now we're going back to the world building exercise and I've prepared something that is kind of similar to the last time but something that I've been wanting to do for quite a while we've been talking about the etymology of box right yes yes we have yeah so box is a substrate word or a word with substrate origins so we'll be looking at substrate words and substrate languages for our world building exercise Substrate words are very helpful to sketch out uh, the society of ancient speakers of the substrate language um, that were in the regions before Eurocon world conlang people arrived. And um, you can see what they, they might have been into. So, for example, agriculture, metal- metallurgy. Metallurgy, yeah. Me- metallurgy. And in general, just knowledge that they might have had that might have been transferred to your people through contact. Um, And they can also influence the sound changes and development of your language itself. So, for example, um, French was uh, heavily influenced by the substrate languages being there um, and stuff like that. So, as I mentioned before, some substrate words or most substrate words are animal and plant names that not native in, in the homelands of your people and are new to the new uh, to the people when they arrive in this new area. So that's like a lot of names are uh, just plant and animal names as well as uh, as well as place names and hydronyms. So the task will be to create a simple substrate language for a region your speakers are migrating to, and you have to come up with one or three or even more substrate words that will be adapted into your language. Fantastic. That sounds very fun. Right. So how long for this? I don't know, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Cool. Right. So yeah. See you in 20 minutes. Oh boy, that was some quick conlanging. Yeah. I mean, I've spent like half of the time just deciding which vowels to take, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time on the phonology as well. Yeah.
All right, should we um, start comparing? Yeah, uh, do you want to go first or shall I go first? Yeah, I can go first. Okay, so quick background. Um, my speakers um, that are encountering the subject language um, are the speakers of the Otasu language, which is um, a descending, is, which is a descendant of the Wayet language, which is in fact a descendant of the Asal language. And they're just the people coming from like a kind of deserty or rather steppe, like kind of like savannah uh, region. And they're slowly migrating towards the ocean, but haven't quite reached it yet until they meet with um, the substrate people. So I will quickly um, go into the phonology. There are five different vowels. At first, I wanted to make a um, vowel harmony, but uh, I couldn't quite um, decide what to do. So I just dumped the idea. And yeah, so my vowels are ah, ah, eh, e, e. The consonants are ge, 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 ge. Sorry for um, not really differentiating them because I, um, <laughs> as a German speaker, I have problems with uh, the aspiration. But yeah, just uh, keep in mind uh, one is aspirated and one is not. Then we have ka, ga, ka, ga. Then we have e, h, ha, ra, ra, sa, sa, lia, nya, nga. Then um, we have the first word, which is gyankot, um, meaning gazelle, consisting of gyank, meaning to hop, and et, forming the animate agent. Then we have a quick evolution. It becomes adapted in a early stage of the Otasu language as chon kats and develops um, like this. Sonkets, sonkas, sonkas, sokkas, and then it's either sokkas or sokkas, like with a, a long consonant there. Um, and it's also just gazelle because it's a an animal that is not native to the homelands of the Otasu people. The next word would be orn, meaning to travel. It's adapted as orne and develops as orne, orn, on, on. And in the end, it means to sail because um, the substitute people were kind of known to been sailing and it was kind of a new concept for the Otasu people. Um, so that's where they learned it from. And the last word would be kilyo, meaning river, uh, which is adapted as kilyo, then develops to shelyo, shelo, and now it's the shelo being a special river in this region. Yeah, that's kind of it. Cool, I like it. I really like the phone aesthetics, really good. Thanks. <laughs> Um, considering how how um, short a time we had to um, decide on phonesthetics here. Uh, shall I talk about my languages then? Yeah, please. 
So um, for the phonology of my substrate language, which I'll just leave unnamed, I'll just keep it as substrate language to uh, to not overcomplicate things. Um, I have a relatively small phonology, so I have ma, na, and then I have uh, stop sequences uh, differentiated by um, ejectives, so pa, pa, ta, ta, ka, ka. Then three fricatives, tha, sa, ha, and then two approximants, ra and wa, and then just a five vowel system with no uh, length distinction. And then the proto form of the new language, proto tenor, uh, has ma, na, and then stops with voicing distinction, so pa, pa, ta, da, ka, ka. Fricatives also with voicing distinction, fa, va, sa, za, ha, ga, ha. And then also two approximants, la and ya. And then a four vowel system, e, a, o, r. So no u. And r is more like a back vowel rather than a central or front one. Uh, so then I have a bit of evolution for uh, proto tenor. Um, so uh, essentially what this is, is um, ya becomes sha, unstressed vowels are lost. And basically the stress pattern is every other syllable is stressed. Uh, so if it's, uh, um, a, a word is three syllable long, then the middle syllable will not be stressed. So then unstressed vowels are lost. Coda fricatives become ha. Coda stops become a glossal stop. Voiced onsets create a low tone. Voiceless onsets create a high tone. Coda glossal stop creates a rising tone. Coda um, glossal fricative creates a falling tone. There's a devoicing of all obstruents. Then ha, so the velar fricative becomes a, a uh, voiceless uvula stop, ha and r both become h, and then a raises to e in stress syllables, and um, r raises to o in stress syllables as well, um, which basically means that there is no longer, in the modern language, there's no longer a voicing distinction in stops, and ha has been introduced, and the vowel system is the same, there's just been a bit of moving around. So, there was a bit of tonogenesis there, because I decided to do a little bit of tonogenesis. So what does all this look like overall? Well, I created three words in my substrate language and uh, put them into tenor and put them under lots of um, uh, so, but not a lot of, but under these sound changes. So my first word from my substrate language is kathanu, and kathanu means hops, uh, like the like the crop, because um, the climate of this uh, area is different. Uh, than the, uh, the the climate of um, where the tenor people originally came from, and so um, this word is introduced to them now because k does not sorry uh, uh, does not exist in uh, tenor and nor does th. These are realised as k and s, and u is realised as o again because uh, tenor doesn't have u. So ethanol uh, becomes casano, and then because of uh, this stress rule, uh, the middle a will be lost, and so casano will become casno. Then the k will create a uh, high tone. The coda fricative will become ha, and then create a falling tone. And so overall, we have cono with a falling tone on the first o. Cono, and that just still means hops. And this can be combined with the word qi, uh, which means a liquid or a drink or a beverage, which comes from the proto-word chete. And you can get kono qi, and that means beer or ale, so a hops drink. My second substrate word is pekar, uh, which means iron. And this is borrowed into uh, proto-tena as bekal, um, because there's no r, and so uh, this is realised as la, and then same 
voicing adjective things going on as uh, in Kthanu. Uh, and then over time, Bekal uh, becomes Peel with a rising tone, and this means metal or just a strong material. And finally, uh, from the substrate uh, language, there's Wasoche. And Wasoche means step, as in like a kind of environment, because this environment is sort of um, analogous to the step, the Asian, the Asian step um, on Earth. And uh, Wasoche is borrowed into Proto-Tene, Tena, sorry, as Vosoche, with a V initially instead of a W. And over time and sound changes, this eventually becomes Forke, uh, with the, um, uh, an initial O with a low tone and then a uvula stop. So, uh, Forke. And this just means country or land, like any sort of area, because these people were so used to just the step after a while that they envisioned all land as just a step. And then also from Proto-Tena, uh, uh, there's the word Yama, which becomes uh, just Shom in uh, modern Tena, and uh, Yama meant strange or unknown, and Shom means like foreign more so than strange now, and so Shom Foke is uh, a foreign country. That's awesome, really. Um, I enjoyed listening to it because I've I've been receiving a few pictures and uh, notes on your process of developing that language. Um, and it's just awesome to see like the sound changes and how it interacts with the uh, subtle words and stuff like that. So it's awesome to hear. And I really love um, the stuff with uh, hops and uh, it's, it's quite cool. And also that you um, included like the metallurgy uh, mm -hmm. stuff as well. That's That's cool. Yeah, and uh, bearing in mind, again, this is another case of being very, very efficient um, with your sound changes. So I only have in this document here 12 sound changes listed from proto tenor to uh, modern tenor. And yet in those 12 sound changes, I get Yama to become Shom, Bekal to become Peel, and Chete to become Ki. Like, they're clearly, it's not like the most ridiculous sound changes ever where it's um, so completely unrelated from each other. But still, with just 12 sound changes, I've uh, changed some of my vowels around, got some new consonants in, and got a tonal system in, and not an entirely simple one either. Again, just with a couple of sound changes. And obviously the semantic shifts going on here. And clearly tenor is very much a... Um, a, 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 some kind of analytical language uh, with the way it allows um, verbs to be compounds. I guess you could have pielki, uh, sorry, pielki as a metal drink or a drink made up of strong material. Maybe that's some kind of liquor, something like whiskey or rum, something um, a bit stronger. They uh, envision this um, drink made of a strong material or something like that. Or you could say shomki. Uh, uh, as a uh, as some kind of foreign or strange drink, or you could have shom uh, which would be a foreign beer or foreign ale, uh, just stuff like this, and you can and very quickly you can and, and this is what happened last time as well. You can start making quite an interesting language with just a couple of phonetic inventories, some semantic shifts, and about twelve sound changes. Mm -hmm. I do have like a bunch more, so. I usually categorize my, my shifts into different um, 
different shifts. So I have like first shift, second shift, third shift, and so on, in order to better um, incorporate contact to with such uh, languages and stuff like that, and loaning to other languages um, in different periods of time. So you have like more more differences. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So because because then I can let it go through other sound changes and like the language that it's been loaned to, stuff like that. Um, so, so that's why I do this. But in, in this particular shift series, I had, I think it's about 20-ish shifts. But it's it's more, it's it's probably less, but I describe them as, uh, as more because I <laughs> haven't figured out how to do it. Um, describe, them, uh, describe them properly. So for example, I've Rna becoming n and rla becoming l, but becoming t. But I I did not yet know how to to describe it in in like the typical shift structure, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, I know how you mean. But it it's pretty cool. I, I think it's it's great to make your language more vivid, to to incorporate like not only loan words but also substrate words and. Stuff that just isn't necessarily necessarily clear to someone who listens or looks at the language, um, but that heavily influenced the language. Looking back at its history. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was um, a, a very fun challenge. Um, thank you very much, Yona. Uh, very much enjoying that. <coughs> Excuse me, my cough's getting worse. Uh, yeah, um, doing all these objectives, man, they just, uh, no, uh, yeah, so um, it's uh, maybe it's really put me in the mood to do some conlanging now, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I picked all nouns uh, for my verbs, but I get, uh, for my words, but uh, subject word, words, but I guess you could have in um, verbs and uh, adjectives too, especially if these uh, verbs are, are dynamic verbs relating to a certain action, uh, so maybe, I don't know, the substrate language um, has uh, irrigation, and so maybe they have a verb meaning to irrigate a field or something like that, ready for um, ready for a crop growing. Uh, that'd be quite interesting. Yeah, I decided to pick all nouns because it seemed like the easiest thing to do, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, I've included two nouns and one verb because I liked the idea of having like a shift between to travel, meaning any regular travel. Which also included boats, which weren't known to the Tesu people. So mm -hmm. when when they used it for boats as well, they just adapted it as like to sail. Mm -hmm. Seemed kind kind of natural to me. I don't know, but um, I'm honestly it was actually the second um, substrate language that is um, influencing this language family. Oh, cool. Um, Otesa also has like another substrate language that um, influenced its mother language way it. So there's like a bunch of words, uh, for example, the word watas, meaning crow. Mm -hmm. um, it's also like a substrate word. Then we have like woraskas, um, uh, which is a um, hero in the mythology, which was also loaned um, from the other um substrate language and it's kind of similar to what we talked about in uh, the Greek uh, deities. Then another god is Spapalo, which is also um, a god, the god of death and also useful, 
being a, a date or a date form and use this kind of funny because a pretty closely related language or dialect of Kentro, uh, depending on how you look at it, um, was spoken pretty close to the region where this language was spoken, so Otasu was spoken. So there's a few loan words, and they were brought with them with some settlers who actually came to um, Yonzello um, after the war and helped um, dealing with the dry environments there. So they also brought some words with them. For example, the word Iwis, which was in the dialect Iweso, meaning date. And in, in the Prussian dialect, where they mostly settled, um, Iwis now just means like any sweet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's like a few um, substrate uh, things that I've been messing with. And I've envisioned, when I started making this, I also envisioned using two substrate languages. So um, the one that I worked on earlier and another one that I would have been working on in the future. But uh, now it's pretty cool that I got into it now. Um, and actually, there's something that I want to do with it because I want to do a um, daughter language of, of the substrate language that hasn't died out, um, but whose speakers were kind of expelled or flat or something like that. And they will be like a wandering people that uh, kind of like... Um, I don't know, that have like a very different religion and there's maybe some conflicts with it in, in other regions and that's what I've been planning with uh, with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds cool. All right. Um, do you have any additional miscellaneous things to talk about or should we close the podcast for today? Yes, that's everything. Uh, that's everything I wanted to get in. Um, yeah, good episode. Um, thank you again for uh, the, uh, the 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 challenge. Always enjoy doing that. Um, nice bit of speed conlanging is always good for um, uh, making you uh, come up with ideas quickly. And uh, yeah, it's nice to do a bit of tonogenesis because um, uh, tonogenesis is quite fun. It is when you know what when you know what you're doing. So anyway, yes, um, that is everything for today. So uh, yes, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from Yona, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Bye.